take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ampler. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Riccardi brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Edwards, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cats Whiskers. Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth. Welcome to the Cats Whiskers podcast and particularly to our listeners through Sport FM in Perth. This week we delve back into the 80s and early 90s once again to speak with St. Joseph's product towering ruckman Damien Burke. But first, let's welcome the panel of Anthony Petkovic, Megan Holtz, Gus Marini and Mark Brunger. It seems like an eternity ago, Megan, but what can we take out of last round's loss to Collingwood? Well, Wes, I'd say not too much, actually. Um, With Selwood's injury and and having a couple of other injuries to key players um, and just the way the season is going at the moment, I think it's really hard to read the form that anyone is playing under. There's a few sides probably I'd exclude from that, but um, I'm not too concerned about it at this stage. And I will just say, which I never like to do, but the umpiring was quite unbelievable, I thought. So um, I'm going to put that down as one of the reasons we might have lost the game. Yes, well, that one may well come up before our program is finished for this week. Well, we're about to enter a period of World War Football, Anthony. Have the Cats drawn the short straw with four games in just 14 days to come? Well, Wes, it will be a problem if they pull out the same old tired old faces and body. It's time to push the refresh button. It's time to play Nakia Cockatoo. It's time to play Nathan Kruger. It's time to play Lockie Fogarty. And it's most definitely time to play Charlie Constable. Yes, there's some good names there that we can look forward to donning the hoops in the not-too-distant future. Hello, Gus Marini. What are your thoughts on how we approach Monday's contest with Fremantle? Hi, Wes. Um, Yeah, I I, um, share my thoughts with Anthony as well. I think it's time to probably start putting in a few new faces into into this side just just to freshen it up a little bit. I think the – obviously, we'll be forced to with the injuries to Salwood and obviously – uh, Gary Ablett going back to going back to Geelong, so there's going to be some forced changes. Jordan Clark's injured as well, as we know, but I don't think it hurts from a, from that perspective to um, try some of these guys before you're forced to. And in going back to Megan's comments, it's such an unknown quantity with what's going on with living in hubs, travelling. You do, you really don't know what you're going to expect. So I think this I think the team that manages their list 
and the physiotherapists probably have got a, the most important role to play ever in the history of the game. I think that's what's going to separate probably teams making a top four and, and a bottom eight. And Mark, welcome to you. It's been a few sad days for the Geelong community with the passing of two significant sporting contributors, including a much-loved cat. Yes, absolutely, uh, Wes. Uh, one of the heroes of Geelong's 1952 Premiership side has passed away this week. Jeff Williams was part of one of the great halfback lines in that Premiership year with John Hyde and Russ Middlemas. Uh, and to top it off, Williams won the Kaji Grease medal in the same season, in a premiership season. He was born in Geelong, played for East Geelong, and he was recruited surprisingly for Warrigal, having been transferred down there by his work in a bank. Williams played 121 games in the Blue and White Hoops and picked up another Kaji in 1955, was made a life member in 1959, and was awarded the Red Chickie Award for Services to Australian Football in 1984. In 2016, he was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for services to football, and Jeff unfortunately passed away last Monday night, aged 89. We send our sympathies to Jeff's family on their loss, and the Cats will be wearing black armbands in his memory on Monday night against Fremantle. And unfortunately, this week also saw the passing of a much-loved sports journalist and media personality in Rob Gaylard, aged 70. Rob forged a career in broadcasting through his involvement in football commentary and his role as sports presenter on BTV6 Ballarat before moving on to present sport on National 9 News. Of recent years, Rob's passion for horse racing has come to the fore and he was a familiar face at many racetracks around the state. Rob was enthusiastic, energetic and friendly person who loved nothing more than having a good chat. We send our condolences to Rob's wife, Karen, and the family for a man taken way before his time at just 70 years of age. Thank you very much, Mark, for sharing that on behalf of the team. Well, let's get into this week's program. As mentioned, coming up this week is a former captain of the club who steered the Cats to within little more than a straight kick of the 1989 Premiership, Damien Burke. Damien Burke made his debut at the elite level at just 18 years of age in 1983, becoming Geelong's 830th player at senior level. He emerged as a genuine powerhouse in the hoops by 1987, captaining the club from that season to 1989, where he led the Cats into arguably the greatest grand final of the modern era. Damien had a standout season in 1991, playing 20 games and garnering 16 Brownlow medal votes. By 1993, despite continuing to wear the number 30, Damien was sporting different colours, those of the Brisbane Bears. He spent three seasons at Carrara before retiring, having played 124 games at the highest level, 102 of those with Geelong. Damien, it's an absolute delight to have you with us. Welcome to the Cats Whiskers. Thank you, Megan. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, you were one of Geelong's great players in one of our greatest ever teams, but I understand that you nearly passed up the opportunity to come to the Cats. Well, there's a bit of a story in that, actually, because I was uh, was just a young fella and... uh... Bill McMaster was a recruiting agent at the time, or the recruiting manager, and uh, he kept he came and saw me, and uh, I was playing up at St Joey's there, the local uh, local school and local team, and I just got convinced to stay at St Joey's. All the old folks there, who I looked up to at the time, they said, "Look, stay here. You're going to learn a lot more. You're only a young fella. You know all the sort of um, emotive reasons to stay because they're your mates." So I, I got conned by that. I'm going, "Yeah, yeah." So I actually said to Bill, "No, no, I don't want to come down." And Bill, to his uh, shrewd 
uh, wisdom said, uh, Damien, why don't you come down and try, just train one night a week and give it a go? And I thought, well, I can hardly say no to one night a week, can I? So I, uh, I picked Thursday night. I figured that'd be the easiest night to train. And uh, I came down, trained at the uh, under-19s there. And I think I played the first game. I can't remember. And uh, basically, the rest is history. I, I loved it from day one and, and stayed down there. And uh, as I learned a little bit later, which I encourage any young guy, if you can ever push yourself to go further, go for it. You can always come back and uh, you know resume your career back at the local club but yeah so I, I kind of said no to Geelong at the very start but I was probably young and naive. It's interesting you say that Damien uh, in talking of the experienced guys around St Joey's and that sort of stuff because when you landed at Cadenia Park there was there was two pretty handy ruckmen there at the time in, in John Mossop who is one of the, the greats of the club as well and also Rod Blake who had a fair career as well so how did you go about learning from those two and what and and how influential were they on your game? Well, you know, there's a couple of issues. There wasn't just um, Rod and uh, uh, John Mossop. There was um, uh, Darren Flanagan, Ramsey Boganovich, and I think Ramsey Boganovich's brother was even there at the time. I can't remember his name. So they had a plethora of big fellas. And um, I suppose playing in the ruck's a really different position because whilst everyone else, it's all about team, but when it comes to other ruckmen, they're kind of your opponent as well, vying for your position in the side. So it became a little bit um, uh, one of those love-hate relationships. You know, you love each other because you're teammates, but at the same time you're going, well, I want that position. And there's only so many rough positions. So I'll never forget, um, I was playing in a practice match out at uh, Cryo, one of my first practice matches when I went down there. And I think it was Bill McMaster, the recruiting guy, said to me, said, Damien, if you want to get noticed, you, you, I was playing on John Mossop. He said, for the first bounce, go out there and punch him right in the nose. He said that, Brutals will go, geez, we better watch this guy. <laughs> I, I didn't punch him in the nose, but uh, it's a really difficult dynamic for Ruckman because there's only limited positions. So, yeah, Geelong had a, a lot of Ruckman at the time. It was, it was tough, but I suppose they, were, I had, they had a number of years on me as well. So I, I came through at the age of 18, 17, 18 when I started at the club. Those guys were probably three, four, five years old and had 100-plus you know, years, 100 games uh, experience. So um, the great part was that back in those days, they Tommy was coached, but then they did start to separate. When John Newman came down and started coaching us, they did start to separate the ruckman off and we did specialised training. So that was great. So I was able to actually learn from other big guys rather than having Tommy, who knew nothing about ruck work, and I think he admitted that as a, as a midget, trying to teach us about, uh, about ruck work. So, yeah, it was, it was, that was really good, really good. Damien, I'm interested in your, your first season there at Geelong in 1983. You uh, started late in the season. You got a run against uh, Melbourne at the MCG about round 16. And I, That's I, right. I don't know if you spent too much time on the ground that day, but a few weeks later you announced yourself in football when you were given the first ruck position, I think, against uh, the Sydney Swans up in Sydney and played a bit of a blinder on a Friday night. Yeah, can I, can I just take you forward a bit first, though? Because that, that was round 16 uh, against Melbourne at the MCG, my first game, so all very exciting. You know, named in the paper and everyone's taking photos of you. Know, it's all big, big news for the family and friends, etc. But I'll just take you forward a bit. 1989, halfway through the season, Malcolm Blight had a team meeting. So we're all in the change rooms and Blighty's got everyone in. And basically he was trying to tell all the players, guys, don't be afraid to take risk. It's okay. You can take a risk that the, the coaching side, the coaching um, panel won't hold it against you if you make a mistake. He said, guys, he said, there's no one's ever played the perfect game. There's never been a player that hasn't made a mistake. And I'm sitting there. I've gone, I couldn't resist. I've gone, uh, Malcolm, he's like, what? I said, oh, I played the perfect game once. 
And he's like, what are you talking about? So I told him back, so come back to, yeah, right, round 16, 1983 versus Melbourne at the MCG. And if I remember, it was a big day because we had, I think it was a 125 years celebration between the competition between Melbourne and Geelong. It's a big day, big day. I'm named on the bench. John Mossop is playing in the ruck and he's a great player, big Rex. Go out there and Rex is playing a great game. I'm on the bench. Every time the, the phone would go, I'd jump up, ready to hop on the ground. No, no. Third quarter. By the fourth quarter, I'm still sitting there on the bench, hadn't got on. I was busting for a pie because I was starving. And I was just and then I was too embarrassed to go on thinking, oh, please don't just don't put me on. I'll just sit here and just just no one will notice. Sure enough, I played the whole game on the bench, did not get on the ground, and we got flogged. So I can honestly say I played the perfect game because I didn't make a mistake. So that was uh, yeah, that was uh, that was my debut, which was uh, somewhat embarrassing. So I remember one of the journos came in after the game in the change rooms. And he's sort of trying to ask me about what I thought of the game. And eventually I said to him, said, mate, I didn't get on. And he's going, oh, he said, I was a bit embarrassed to ask you because I didn't see you out there. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, yeah, anyway, I think a couple of weeks later, you're right. We did play up at um, uh, Sydney at the SCG. On, uh, I played on Barry Round, big Barry Round. And uh, I loved the SCG because it was a small ground, so you could, like, get around the ground pretty easily. And uh, I loved playing there. It was, it was good. We had a good night. We had a really good night. In fact, I think it was, if I recall, it was Tommy Hafey's birthday that night. Damien, you touched on, um, you know, the ruck coaching at Geelong when you first got to the club and under Tommy Hafey. I wanted to sort of uh, get your thoughts more on that because my recollection, I'm sure it's the recollection of many people who watched you play, your tap ruckman, your art, your craft was just sensational in getting first hands on the ball and it, it wouldn't go astray in Geelong's team today. Was that mainly attributed to someone like, Sam Newman coming to the club, or was it your focus to be uh, that that skillful at actually at the art of, of tap ruckman? See, the great part about being retired for a few years, I could probably make up an answer that makes me look a lot better than what I was, couldn't I? No, truth, truth is, look, um, the way that I played, the style that I played was, without saying I was anywhere near in the same league, but it was the same style that Sam played. So when he came down to coach me, it was perfect. So Rod Blake was my first coach. Terrific, no problems at all. But Rod had a lot more height, so he played a different style of ruck work, whereas Sam was not the tallest ruckman, but he had a style the way he jumped and used his body, which was kind of identical the way I did. And, in fact, it was pretty much identical the way um, Polly played back in uh, back in his day. So when Sam came down coaching, for me it was perfect because it, it sort of just exponentially helped me leverage off my natural style anyhow. And, and so I, I really enjoyed that and I really appreciated his um, his tutelage over those uh, number of years so I think combining that with just I kind of had a natural predisposition to just want to go in and kill the opposition you know like you're playing in the ruck's a pretty brutal sort of position and you really do need that um, combination of of I suppose your, your style and your strength and sense of calmness this was one of the things I did when I was coaching even up here at Brisbane you need to almost be you know tough as nuts going at the ball, but at the same time have your peace of mind so that your, your hands can be really controlled. And uh, Sam was good at coaching that and uh, it probably just helped me leverage off. And I'd like to think that, it, that you know, I didn't mind playing it sort of hard, but at the same time I had the, um, I suppose, the sense to be able to make sure that we got the best out of it that we did, you know, down to our smaller players, little pygmies running around. They had to get, the, get a kick every now and then. And Damien, of course, having a number of brothers, I'm wondering how instrumental that was in terms of the, the knocks and the scrapes that you might have copped in the backyard and what sort of preparation that was for playing the physical game that you did. Well, I used to tell a story and uh, 
much to my mother's embarrassment, I was interviewed one time years ago in the playing days. And they said, how is it that the Burke boys are so tough? I said, oh, look, I said, what it is? I said, I grew up, there's nine of us in our family, six boys and three girls. I said, but my mum only put eight meals out. I said, so we had to be tough to survive. And I, I was only joking, you know, and my mum was actually at the supermarket <laughs> down there in uh, Hamlin Heights and a lady bailed her up and said, that's a terrible way to treat your children. <laughs> my mum's like, what, are you serious? You can't take a joke, for goodness sake. We, we, we grew up, we are all pretty independent boys and we're all, we're all big, you know, so we, I'm six foot six my brothers are six foot six down to the you know i've got a short brother he's six foot two and uh he thinks he's a he's a run to the litter you know um, so we were just all big fellas and i suppose we just enjoyed our sport and enjoyed our competition damien you were able to captain geelong for three seasons which must have been um quite a privilege tell us how that came about and what that meant to you well that was um I, look I, I i got named captain when john devine came on board and uh you know, I love John as a coach, just absolutely fantastic. I had uh, three coaches at Geelong, all completely different. Um, and John just had the culture that I loved. You know, he loved the club, led for the club, you know, and, and led for the team and wanted to do everything to succeed so that the, the, the only aim he really had was for, for success so that we could all enjoy it, not just as teammates but as, as coaching staff, as, as club um, admin and then supporters, everybody to enjoy it. Uh, and I love that. So I guess... Um, why John sort of kicked me is probably twofold. Firstly, Mark Yates was supposed to be named captain that season. And very early in the season, I think it was either practice match or one of those um, Foster's Cup or one of those preseason games. Um, Yates, he was, we were at VFL Park and he tore his Achilles tendon. And uh, basically, in those days, you wiped out for quite a long time. I'm not sure if it's the same today with an Achilles tendon, pretty nasty injury. So, look, I was kind of like the, um, the Bradbury of, uh, of Geelong captains at the time. I came through and uh, I remember John invited me up to his house in um, Newtown there and for dinner and he, he said, listen, this is what I want to do. And he wanted to have just a – I think he wanted to have a, a, a captain that, was, that had a presence and being a big fella and uh, uh, sort of having a bit of a presence on the field. I think he sort of said, you know, you're the man. And I, I was pretty young and there's no way known, of course, you know, as a young fella, you're going to say, oh, no, I don't think so jump at the opportunity and uh, so I grabbed it and um, look, I, I loved it. I loved it being in that position. Um, unfortunately, I you know, got a few injuries during that time, which is in part probably by, because of the way I play the game. But, you know, I look back now and I go, well, I wouldn't have changed anything either. Damien, uh, you mentioned before Barry Round when you uh, played your blinder up in Sydney and, and, and back in, those, in the 80s there when you played, there were some fantastic ruckmen around. Who was the hardest ruckman you played against I think the toughest I played against was Big Wheel Jones. He was just tough. Man, like I was a young fellow and he's a bit older than me. And uh, I remember one of the early games I played against him. I gave him a little love tap trying to soften him up to think that might put him off his game. And he's just turned around. He's looked at me and he said, you want to play like that young fella? And he's just gone bang and belled at me. You know, and I've got tears coming out my eyes. I'm like, oh, I don't really want to play like that. You know, I had to pretend it didn't hurt me. And I, and I tried not to cry. Uh, anyway, so we, we sort of exchanged love taps a few times. And I think after a while, Big Wow and I just came to the conclusion, you know what, we might stop belting each other. We might just play a game of footy. <laughs> and we just, and we did. Um, but, yeah, but Justin Madden, I, um, I remember playing uh, against Carlton. It would have been 88 out of VFL Park. And uh, I, I just the, t- the game was a bit tight at the time. And uh, we're out in the flank, the back flank. Mark Yates was kicking in from full back. 
and Justin was kind of annoying me and Carlton were beating us at the time and we're losing hold of the game. And I just gave him a little love tap on the chin and down he went. Now, fair dinkum. It was like a big Norfolk pine. Just it took 30 minutes to bloody ground. And I'm like, oh, mate, can you just go down quickly? Anyway, so I jogged off. As I'm jogging off, the crowd have obviously noticed. They start a bit of a roar behind me. I'm thinking, oh, that's right. No, I'm good. I'm good. No one saw it. No one saw it. And the umpire looks up at me. I've just said, g'day. And I've jogged past him. As I've jogged past the umpire, I've turned around. There he is lying prone on the ground, like a big Norfolk pine that's been chopped down. And no one was around him. Not a soul. I'm thinking, oh, I'm done for here. Yatesy, to his credit, saw what happened. He's kicked the ball to me. Come if I marked it or punched it on or something. Next thing you know, the entire Carlton team's on top of me like a bunch of gremlins. They're hanging off my ear. They're biting, scratching. I'm thinking, oh, man, I just had them all over me. So I'm fighting just to get to my feet. And uh, the, the, the commotion that probably came out of that, fortunately, uh, prevented, I think, the umpire from looking at me too closely and scrutinising what happened. So we, uh, fortunately, I think, we then went on to win the game. How would you have gone with trial by video uh, these days with the MRO? You might have copped it. I, I look, you know what? Fortunately, that one wasn't on video, so that was good. Um, although the trial by video did come in. Uh, I can't remember what season it came in, but myself and Tony Lockett were the first two players to be reported trial by video. I was at work on the Monday, and I just hear it on the news report on the radio saying um, Damien Burke and Tony Lockett have been reported trial by video. I ring up Ken, Ken Gannon, who's the CEO of the club. I said, Kenny, what, what's this all about? He's going, I don't know. He said, we, we don't know what trial by, by video is. Now, fortunately, I belted whoever it was behind the play, so there was no video. There wasn't as many cameras as there are today. <laughs> Damien, uh, <laughs> that ma- magical 1989 season that you were part of, even though we didn't win the flag, but a lot of Geelong yep. supporters remember it most fondly. You and Darren Flanagan played most of the games uh, sharing the ruck, and it wasn't a sort of a interchange regular sort of a basis. It seemed like you took it quarter by quarter. You would have a quarter, then he would have a quarter. How did that come about? Yeah, it was quite, look, you know, that was Blighty's idea. Um, I, I look back now, and I'm not sure it's the right way to go about it, because particularly in the ruck, the ruck playing in the ruck's a very different position. It's the only position on the ground where you face your opponent, for example. So you've got a lot of different dynamics in the ruck, and it can take your time to get into the groove of how the how the play how the game's being played and where you should play and how you should play. So that all of a sudden when you go, yeah, bang, you're off, bang, you're on. I say I didn't enjoy it when you've got you know, we had more than two ruckmen at the time. I get that it's an idea to perhaps try and use your resources uh, well. I just don't know whether it's probably the best use. You know, I think there's probably different ways to use your ruckman. I'm a big fan of of big guys on the ground because you don't get shorter in the fourth quarter. You, know, you might get tied in the legs, but you don't get any shorter. Um, so I love seeing big guys, you know, even if they're not playing in the run, I like seeing big, strong players down the, down the spine of the ground, like, which, which is one of the things I think is missing these days is the, is, the, is the man-on-man contest where it's, you know, two a contest. Instead of having a centre-half forward getting a kick it on the centre-half back line, you go, mate, you're not going to kick a goal from there. Get down a centre-half forward, have a contest, take it, have a shot or play on or feed it to a forward, full forward, you know. So I kind of miss that. And I think that, when Blighty started doing that, that was one of that early stages of rotating players. And now you see they rotate. <clears throat> Pardon me, they rotate players a hell of a lot. You know, and I was on the coaching panel up here during the Brisbane uh, uh, Lions premiership years, and the rotations were just constant. You know, guys would be on for five, six minutes. I'm thinking, gee, hard to get another groove of the game in five or six minutes. I was going to say the monitor how many Ks they cover these days as well. 
speaking of 989, be remiss of us not to ask you about the, that famous grand final. We get a lot of perspectives from the usual suspects like Yatesy and uh, Dermot and the like. As captain of the team, can you just run us through what your th- thoughts were, especially late in that last quarter when Geelong were coming? And uh, and when you look back on the day, how, how do you remember the day and, and, the, and the event? Look, I, I think when you look back, you look back and you say, look, we didn't have the best side in the competition. We had really exciting football. We played an exciting brand of football. And I, I'd argue that we had to go out hard and try and soften up Hawthorne to give us a chance to win. They were a very good team, no doubt about it. Uh, and we held our own. There's another game against Hawthorne early in the season that was just as exciting. And I think it was just as close, if I, if I recall. So it's a it's a bit of that coaching skill of saying, right, I need to adapt what the tools I've got for the day that I've got. So in a different game, you might have had different strategies in place. I think, I think the way we started... It was probably a bit brutal and, you know, people might say, oh, you know, Geelong sort of came out playing the hardball. Yep, no problems. We did. I don't I don't disagree and I don't think it was the wrong thing to do. I think at the end of the day, and I, I've got to check the, the video on this because I don't think we lost. I think we just ran out of time. I think if we'd had another 30 seconds, I'm pretty sure Robert Scott was running down to kick a goal and it would have been a different result. We'd have been fine. So I like to think we didn't lose, we just ran out of time. I mean, just to get your thoughts as well, in this day and age, only recently the AFL have changed the rule that they won't uh, play a replay in the grand final. They'll go, they'll go on into extra time. Um, it's well documented that if Geelong and Hawthorne had to play the week after in 89, they would have probably had six um, injuries each and would have had probably half a dozen replacements. What are your thoughts on that rule change? Do you think it's better that they're just sorted out on the day or do you prefer the traditional way they used to have it of playing the replay? You know, you know what? I actually still prefer the traditional way. I understand getting the result and, and it throws everything out and you've got a massive um, logistics issue, if nothing else, in regards to having a grand final the following week. But I also look and go, okay, that's, that's our game. That's how it's played. This can happen. And you know what? You're right. There were some pretty serious injuries uh, that both sides would have struggled to, to, to field a team the next week. But I also look and go, that's, that's part of the game, though. That's okay. Uh, so I'd have no problems with playing that replay. And I bet, I bet of, of those, of the six or seven that would have been out, probably five or six would have put themselves in line and said, yeah, I'm okay. Jesus does his rounds on Thursday night. Don't worry. There's many a miracle performed on Thursday night. And there's, there's some talk about uh, whether or not Mark Yates initiated the idea of going hard against Dermot Brereton or was that something that had stemmed from a Malcolm Blight directive? But did you have any inkling that that was coming up? Oh, look, we, we knew that. We spoke about the night before at the um, team meeting. Yatesy owed uh, Dermot from early on in the year. Dermot had cleaned him up, so Yatesy was the appropriate man. And there's no doubt about it. Uh, Brereton was coming into line up either Couchy or Bear, so I can't remember, uh, who was in the centre bounce here with us. Uh, and and Brereton did that regularly. Uh, good luck to him. You got away with it. But uh, we weren't going to let him go get away with it on that day. Uh, the, the bummer about it is that he got up. I, you know, I regret not running over and belting him, just keep him down. I reckon we'd have been a better chance then. Damien, just going back to Gus's point before about the number of injuries sustained in that grand final, I understand that you played the entire 89 season with a torn PCL. Is that right? Yes, I did. I did. Uh, it was actually at the end of the yeah, it was at the end of the 89 season that um, I sat down and I just I, I couldn't put up with it anymore. It was just so loose uh, and it hurt me for, for like sprinting and stopping. So uh it just, I just got a point. I, I literally, at the end of '89, I um, uh, I wrote a letter to the club resigning as captain, 
and said, I have to go and get this fixed and uh, went in for surgery. And uh, once that, when I, when I was first diagnosed with it, they thought it was just strain. And then when the surgeon opened me up, it was actually um, detached. So we had to drill a hole and stick it back in. And uh, it's, still, it's still loose today, but um, I'm not playing anymore. So uh, and the, the only reason I'm not playing is because there's a salary cap. So if it wasn't for the salary cap, I reckon I'd be a chance. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, no, actually, I spoke to uh, Lee Matthews about that one time up here at Brisbane. I said, we were down on Ruckman. I said, Lee, I said, I'm available. He said, Berkey, he said, we can pay you what you're worth, not what you want. <laughs> I wasn't sure whether that's a compliment or not. I just I was unsure. But we don't, we don't clarify. It's okay. There was a big bit of backhand attached to that, I think. I mean, uh, on a, a slightly more sombre note, we lost a, a great player a few years ago that was way too early in, in Brownlow medalist, Paul Couch. Now, you shared a house with Couch when you first arrived in town. You became great friends with him as well. Can you just share with us some of your memories of the great Paul Couch and, and, and just some of his his attributes that, that endeared him to so many people? Well, the main thing that endeared him, so when it came on the footy field, he just, he was one of these guys, like he was really fit. He didn't look like he was super fit, but he could just run around all the time. But he was, he was niggling. So he'd be the one that wanted to, he'd stir everything up and walk away giggling. He had this giggle. I don't know if you met Couch, he had this giggling. You go, oh, mate, you've caused all this trouble. And you're like a 10-year-old running off giggling now, you know. So he, he could start fights out on the ground and crawl away laughing. Next you know, you're in there protecting him. But he was a terrific fella, Couchy, and um, you're right. He did go too early, and it, it, it is a it's a sad story in that regard. Um, I heard the news; I was off, offshore at the time, and uh, I was devastated. But here's a twist to that story: at his wake, I uh, I bumped into Gary Cameron, who played at Geelong. His wife, who's good friends with Geraldine uh, Couchy's wife, was at the wake, and uh, she asked me what I'm doing, and I said I'm living in Brisbane. Um, Jokingly, I said, I'm looking for the next Mrs. Burke. And she then introduced me to her sister, who lives in Brisbane, who is now my wife. And uh, we've just recently had a baby. So we've got a four-month-old inside there. So uh, we actually thank Couchy very much for what he's produced for our family and we'll be forever indebted to him. So, yeah, so it's uh, – in fact, my family still call my wife uh, Funeral Girl. That's her nickname. And, Damien, of course, you've ended up um – uh, in Brisbane and been there for a long time. How did all that uh, come about? Oh, there's a story. There's a big story. Oh, look, that came about in the uh, 93 season. There's a bit of a history there to go see AFL Players Association. And I'm not sure if you, you remember at the time, but there's a dispute between the Players Association and the uh, AFL at the time where they didn't recognise the Players Association. There was a big meeting at the um, it was a Radisson Hotel in St Kilda Road there, or off St Kilda Road, Queensway, I think it was, in Melbourne, where all the players got together. Um, there's a few issues that were pretty important at the time in regards to um, conditions that the players were subject to. And, you know, what? that was really simple things, very simple things like um, they had no protection of the contract. So the club could drop you off the list and terminate your contract. If it was a two-year contract, you got nothing, essentially. So there's a few things that the players said, and protection from injuries. So we had no protection for um, work, work, cover or the like or no insurance protection. So well, guys need to be protected if they get injured. Anyway, that led to um, a dispute. And uh, we played Fitzroy at the in that pre-season competition that year. And just after the game against Fitzroy, which would have been in February, 
the Players Association had a number of players who signed up, and I was one of them, that allowed the Players Association to go to the, uh, the Industrial Relations Commission uh, for an arbitration uh, hearing, uh, just to basically try and resolve a dispute. Cut a long story short, that then led to a situation in Geelong where we had uh, a dozen players uh, had signed up to that, basically heavily intimidated. Malcolm Blight was filthy about it. Uh, the club was filthy about it. A few things sort of went on behind the scenes that I didn't think were appropriate. I then uh, I ended up re- resigning from the club. So within a matter of days, I resigned from the club. I said, yeah, I'm done. That's it. Uh, I wasn't too happy about all of this. And uh, I stepped away from football. And then uh, I did a little bit of coaching up at North Melbourne with Dennis Pagan. I think it was his first year at North. So I was coaching uh, with him for the first half of the year. And then I just, I just wanted to actually get away from the whole Melbourne Geelong scene and um, put the feelers out for work. And I jagged a job up here in uh, Brisbane. So I moved up to Brisbane for work. And then uh, they had a mid-season draft back in those days. And uh, Brisbane spoken to me. And they basically said, look, what do you think? I said, yeah, no. I said, um, look, I worked and played down there. I'm happy to come on board. I was thinking more as a probably an older mentor type player for a few of the young ruckmen that I had there. So they drafted me, um, I think, uh, number four in the mid-season draft. Um, I came out of retirement and I hadn't done a lot of training, but the first game back was against uh, Footscray at Footscray at the old um, Witten Oval um, in Footscray there. And I think the first bounce, Scott Wine jumped up, stood on my shoulders, hit the ball down the field, and I thought, my God, what have I done? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, then I went on and played uh, a couple of seasons at, the, at uh, Brisbane. And then, and then retired and uh, eventually went back there when Lee Matthews took on the coaching and uh, got involved with Lee over the years. Damien, speaking of your time going to Brisbane, it would have been a little bit of a semi-reunion because it's a sad statistic that out of that 89 grand final, there were four Geelong players, David Cameron, yourself, Shane Hamilton, Andrew Buse, who all ended up at the yeah. Brisbane Bears. I, I understand David Cameron and Shane Hamilton were part of that uh, trade for the number one draft pick. So when you got there, what was the feeling like? Was it a bit surreal? And obviously David O'Keefe and Steve, Steve Reynoldson might have still been there or maybe just had gone when you'd arrived at Brisbane. Yeah, no, Reno and uh, Coffer had gone. Um, as had uh, David Cameron. Oh, he was the one to And then uh, Adrian Fletcher, who'd also been at Geelong, was there. Busey came up the next year. Hamo. Uh, yeah, so look, it was, <laughs> from that point of view, it actually made it a lot easier just to feel as though you're part of the team because... You know, particularly when Busey came up, brought a bit of the culture that, that was evolving at Geelong at the time and it was improving. So I, I kind of feel that late uh, 90s, the culture changed at Geelong and improved a lot. I think it started a few years prior, but I just think that was when it was really improving. So late 80s, yeah, and then into the early 90s. So, so Busey brought good culture with him. And, um, and he's, he's a real workhorse, Busey. Terrific for younger fellas. Brisbane had a young team at the, side, at the time. So, uh, so Busey was just fantastic because he, he led by example. Just he, he did did all of his training hard. He, he went at the ball hard. He, he was committed to everything he did, and that's what young guys I think uh, needed at the time. So yeah, no, it was it was made the transition. And there was a few other a couple of older guys came up who were also very similar minors. So Craig Sarsvich had come up from Collingwood, so he came again with a pretty good culture from Collingwood because they just come off a premier or he played in the premiership there. I'm trying to get a couple of other guys in on just a year. They just came. It came with the right attitude. And there was a fair bit of the foundation for Brisbane that probably started from then on. It was that move to Brisbane, I think, that, that helped them change as a, uh, the whole culture as a club. Ultimately, then Lee was able to take uh, the next step with all these young guys and just bring them onto the one page. And, and you know, you've seen the results in the premierships accordingly. Damien, on behalf of the Cats Whiskers in the panel tonight, um, 
it's been a real honour and a pleasure to to chat with you. And we really want to thank you for being so candid and adding a bit of humour as well and taking us back and reflecting on those great days of, of, of your career. And um, congratulations on your career, on your on your business uh, life in, in Queensland, obviously the new addition to the, to the Burke family. So from all of us, uh, thank you very much and um, congratulations, mate. Thank you very much. Enjoyed the time talking to you guys. Coming up, it's Gus Marini's Team Talk Team of the Week. Return to Sander. And this week's Team Talk is Return to Sender, a song made famous by Elvis Presley. But in this week's edition, we're looking at players who left their original club had a bit of a sojourn and then came back to their original club to finish off their career in most cases. So I'll start with the back line and the back line takes us through a few different eras. The famous North Melbourne Premiership player but started his career at South Melbourne, John Rantel, uh, went from South Melbourne to North and back to South but then eventually broke the game's record uh, with 334 games at Fitzroy in the, a fullback was Chris Tarrant, who started the Magpies, went to the Fremantle Dockers and then returned home to Collingwood. And the other halfback line, uh, probably something that the Geelong supporters are trying to erase from their memory, is Trent Crowe, who, who started his career at Hawthorne, went over to the Fremantle Dockers and in exchange for a number one draft pick, which secured Luke Hodge, and then came back to play in the 2008 Premiership team with the Hawks. So... I'll throw it to our learned friend, Anthony, for his take on that back line as it stands in our return to centre side. Well, you mentioned, of course, Trent Crowd. Crowd was this highway robbery, this. Um, Fremantle giving up the number one draft pick, which they used to get Luke Hodge. Then he went back to Hawthorne for basically for a set of steak knives. Um, absolute disgrace that that was allowed to, to take place. And, of course, the great Johnny Rantel, who, the ultimate loyalist, played in a premiership side at his second club, North, went straight back to South out of loyalty, and they didn't allow him to complete his games record at the club. They pushed him off to Fitzroy for those final eight games, so much for loyalty back in the uh, 1970s and 1980s. Anthony, of course, when uh, when Johnny Rantel went to North Melbourne, uh, that was the, uh, the the era where uh, checkbooks were thrown around left, right and centre. And uh, I think there was a, a rule about players who had played for more than 10 years sort of being free agents. And I think Ron Barassi and North Melbourne took great advantage of not just John Rantel, but uh, some other players as well. Uh, Doug Wade from Geelong, of course, after his 10 years at the Cats, and Barry Davis from Essendon went across to North as uh, as captain. The thing too, Anthony, you mentioned about breaking the uh, the game's record. As we know, Kevin Murray held the record with 333 games. There is an urban myth that the reason it was Fitzroy that did take Rantel was because they wanted to keep that record still at Fitzroy. Have you heard of that myth? And uh, do you know if there's any substance of truth to it? I'm not really sure, but I think Fitzroy and South Melbourne at the time sort of played, had a close association, one at the Lake Oval and one at the Junction Oval, basically just across the across the way a little bit. And maybe that close association enabled that to, to take place as well. Now, 
Wiz, um, the half-back line consists of two bombers, Chris Heffernan, a premiership player with Essendon. He went from Essendon over to Melbourne due to salary cap reasons and then back to Essendon. Billy Pickin, a Collingwood favourite and legend, was at the Pies, had a stint at the Sydney Swans, then went back to Collingwood. And Adam McPhee was a bomber who went the other way. He started at Freo, went to Essendon, then finished his career at, at Fremantle. What can you tell us about these three halfback flankers? Well, I suppose the thing that appeals to me most is Billy Pickin. What a superstar, high-flying defender, of course. Uh, the older members of the panel will remember him clearly and the impact that he could have on a game. And Adam McPhee, of course, is an interesting one. And I know that our Sport FM listeners will be particularly interested in him. Of course, he played 25 games with Frio. He then ventured over to Essendon for seasons 2003 to 2009. He, he actually... Um, Represented Australia twice in 2004 and uh, was became a fabulous player for Essendon, but then made his return to Fremantle for another three seasons where he played a further 56 games. So he certainly had his impact on both sides of the country. He, he certainly did. And um, as we head over towards the centre line, it's got a Collingwood and Fitzroy slash Brisbane flavour about it with Warwick Irwin on one wing, uh, being at Fitzroy, then Collingwood, then back to Fitzroy. Dame Beams, who... Did it in reverse, went from Collingwood to the Brisbane Lions for pick five and I think Jack Crisp as well, which secured Degoe for Collingwood. Then he went, ended up back at Collingwood, as we know. And um, But the one in the middle I'm really fascinated about and interested to hear Mark's thoughts about what is probably regarded as the worst trade of all time, and that is Essendon sentiment Neville Fields, who was at the Bombers, was traded to, to South Melbourne at the time for a couple of untried brothers in the Danaher boys, and then ended up finishing his career back at Essendon. Oh, Gus, I think uh, Essendon got the, the best of that in all, in all ways, particularly with the uh, the Danaher brothers there. But uh, the thing about Neville Fields is is he's one, player, one of the types of players that I really enjoy in football, and that's a left-footed sentiment. I just think that there's nothing better than seeing someone charge out of the centre square and just lay something on the left boot to the to the forward line. So really, really impressed with uh, with Neville Fields over the years and um, spent uh, a considerable time, played 135 games for Essendon before uh, chalking up the, the 60 for South Melbourne after going there in 78. But interestingly, when he, when he came back to Essendon, and I think this is probably the tale of the tape with a lot of these players here, that when they get back to their original club, do they actually... Um, actually value add or is it just sort of some fond memories at the tail end of their career for some of them? I mean, um, obviously, you know, there are a, a lot of players who, who go home for those um, nostalgic reasons but end up sort of sort of fading into the distance. A very good question, Mark, and I think that um, Anthony could probably help answer that in our next line, which is our half-forward line, which features Corey McKernan, Premiership player at North Melbourne, uh, went over to Carlton, then had a fallout with Dennis Pagan and then uh, went back to North because he realised Dennis Pagan had got the job at Carlton. <laughs> David Cloak, another premiership player, uh, he was he was at the Tigers for the ni- 1980 premiership, went over to Collingwood, then finished his career, like, like you were saying before, Mark, about nostalgic reasons, finished his career at the, at the Tigers. And Des Tudnam, a Collingwood great and legend who ended up, being a captain coach, something we don't see these days at Essendon, and then went back, again, probably for nostalgic reasons, to finish off at Collingwood. 
Yeah, I think for most uh, reasons, you're, you're quite correct that they go back for nostalgia reasons and most of them are finished by the time they're at that third stint. Their best football has passed them. A few players have improved or been different types of players. David Cloak at centre-half forward, for example, by the time he went back to uh, Richmond in his uh, in his uh, second innings there, he was uh, transformed himself from a centre-half forward into a, a very effective ruckman. Um, Des Tuttenham, of course, was a great player at Collingwood and and a very effective captain coach at Essendon, uh, but he lost his way there after one particular loss when he forced his players to uh, do laps of Windy Hill on their hands and knees, and that saw the end of him go back. <laughs> the players sort of revolted, so to speak, and he went back to, um, to Collingwood for his final uh, season and a bit before his body failed him. And McKernan, well, he left North because he couldn't stand Dennis Pagan. He went to Carlton, won a best and fairest, and then Pagan was appointed the new coach of Carlton, and he got out of there as quickly as he possibly could and went back to North Melbourne. Interesting thought on uh, on David Cloak. We we know the, the love-hate relationship between Richmond and Collingwood, you know, one being on Punt Road and the other one being just up the road on Hoddle Street, and uh, certainly no love loss between the, uh, the two clubs. I'm, I'm surprised, and I don't ever condone violence, but... I'm surprised David Cloak didn't get a shiv when he came back to Richmond after being at uh, Collingwood. <laughs> totally, because it, it was called the Trade Wars. Um, so many of our younger listeners uh, would, wouldn't be aware of that, but it was called the Trade Wars between Collingwood and Richmond, as you said, from Hoddle Street to Punt Road, where the taxi was just um, earning overtime, um, you know, dropping players off at either end. And I think it all started with, with Philip Walsh, who was the... Uh, the rookie of the year back then, which is equivalent to the the Rising Star Award, and um, when he got shipped off to from Collingwood to Richmond, and Jeff Rains and all the rest of it happened. I think that's what started the whole tit for tat sort of exercise. But we will move on to the forward line, and this is where we are joined by Megan Holtz, who's going to tell us about Paul Salmon in the as a resting ruckman in the forward pocket. It obviously, went from Essendon. Um, you know, he was he was very much maligned in his latter years at Essendon. So he ended up going to Hawthorne, winning a best and fairest, and actually making their team of the century. Then going back to Essendon, Warwick Kappa, as we know, became this rock star at the Sydney Swans. Went to Brisbane for great money. The problem was none of his teammates wanted to kick the footy to him, and then found himself back at, in the Harbour City. And Megan, you can tell us about a current player who's doing some fabulous things for the Carlton Football Club, and that's Eddie Betts. He just he just shows that, that um, age is just a number for him. So, obviously, starting his career at, at Carlton, um, had a, he went on to bigger and better things at Adelaide and now finds himself back at uh, Princess Park. Yes, you're absolutely right with Eddie Betts there too. I mean, he's not showing any signs of slowing down and he's had uh, just as impressive um, record as, you know, when he left Carlton to sort of the, the later um, years of his career. He's had 322 games and 610 goals and he's still going strong. So Carlton's probably very lucky to get him back, I'd say, and he's still um, brilliant, just brilliant to watch and entertaining. Paul Salmon, one of the greatest players of his era, three-time All-Australian, seven-time Essendon leading goal kicker, and you referenced him being a ruckman as well there, so that's quite impressive. And part of the Hawthorne team of the century, he had 224 games at Essendon and 100 at Hawthorne. So an outstanding career for him. And Warwick Kappa, probably one of the more divisive personalities that football has seen, but he, he certainly played an entertaining brand of football and finished with 124 games and 388 goals. And he was runner-up in the Coleman medal twice. So certainly um, he was no slouch, but uh, sometimes his off-field antics perhaps give a bit of a different impression of him. 
I, um, I, think, you... I think the less the less airtime we give Warwick Kappa, the better. But uh, um, interesting, Anthony and Gus, that uh, after he'd finished uh, taking all of uh, Dr. Edelston's money, he went up for some of Christopher and Pixie's cases money. He did too. And I think Megan was being polite using the word divisive. Um, <laughs> but we'll move on to the, the, uh, the ruck combination of Big Carl Dietrich, Gary Ablett Jr. and Peter Bell. And I'm going to uh, engage Megan again for Gary Ablett Jr. because I think she'll be the most qualified out of all of us, having um, uh, seen his career from go to woe and, um, and telling us how, how, what your thoughts were initially, Megan, when you heard he was coming back to Gardenia Park. And did you always have this hope that one day he would return? Yes, always had that hope that he would return. And it was... It felt like one of the worst-kept secrets, his return, but then you never quite knew. you never 100% sure that he definitely was coming back. But it was uh, one of the, as a Geelong supporter, one of the best things that's happened in, in recent years, I would say. Yeah, and big Carl Dietrich, Wes. Um, and, again, I'm going to you because um, I'm not saying you're the oldest of all of us, Wes, but probably the one with the greatest memory. And um, so tell us your recollection of, um, of big Carl playing for both the Saints and... Um, and Melbourne. He had such an angelic appearance when he first started with the Saints, Carl. Uh, that obviously um, was in contrast to his on-field behaviour where he had a tendency to perhaps lose his cool. I I actually worked with uh, Carl Dittrich's daughter who had, bore an, an amazing resemblance to him with the, the very blonde hair and the, uh, the, the Germanic look. And um, look, he was... Uh, a fabulously talented player, uh, and he obviously found that uh, he was able to find some success at both St Kilda and Melbourne. And it's interesting in talking with his daughter at the time, she said that as much as he was probably a, a St Kilda legend, he actually preferred his time at Melbourne. So um, that may well rub some of our St Kilda supporters up the wrong way. And, of course, he was a double return to sender, having gone from St Kilda to the Demons, went back to St Kilda, went back to Melbourne. And, of course, Carl was obviously never very busy on a Monday night because Monday night was the old tribunal night, and he seemed to always want to go to the tribunal. Something about Monday nights and Carl, it wasn't, the, it wasn't a Monday night unless Carl was at the tribunal. Life member. Exactly right, exactly right. And, um, yeah, and that's a great point you make, Anthony, that he did, he was a double return to centre going St Kilda, Melbourne, St Kilda, Melbourne. Again, he w- went back there as a as a playing coach on his last stint. So bring us to our bench. And we could have had we could have had another 20 players to this list. So we cut it down to three, a um, couple with the Geelong flavour. Phil, Phil the Snake Baker uh, was at North initially, went to Geelong, I think probably the same time that Larry Donoghue was there and then went back to North and we all remember him taking that, fantastic mark and I think in the 78 grand final if my memory serves me correctly John Barnes a Geelong favorite uh, started his career at Essendon played his best footy at Geelong but then was rewarded with a premiership at Essendon I don't think any Geelong supporter would have begrudged him that and then Peter Crackers Keenan who you know went uh, via the Cape he started at Melbourne uh, went to North Melbourne, played in a premiership there, went off to Essendon and then returned back to Melbourne when Ron Barassi took over the reins. So, guys, over to you on your thoughts on, on our on our bench. Oh, look, I've, I've got uh, a story to share about uh, Peter Crackers Keenan. Uh, crackers by name, crackers by nature. He's a, a lovable, 
uh, larrikin of uh, football over the years. And back in 1982, I was the uh, assistant reserves timekeeper for Geelong. Um, and it was in the days when the old Army Reserve Cup used to be played at the Lakeside Oval on the Sunday afternoon after World of Sport. And uh, this one particular day, the uh, the normal timekeeper wasn't available, so he sent me up to the Lakeside Oval to, to do it by myself. I was about 14 or 15 at the time, and sitting in the old press box at uh, the Lakeside Oval, which was right next door to the... Uh, the coach's box. And in, on that particular day, DeLong were playing Melbourne that was coached by Ray Slug Jordan and assistant coach by Peter Keenan. And I've got to say, as a 14 or 15-year-old boy sitting next to those two, I learned some very new words that day and some I'd never heard before in my life. <laughs> so that's my memories of Peter Keenan. No, I've got an interesting it's... story to tell you about uh, Phil Baker, the, the um, Phil the Snake Baker. He um, was good enough a player in his second time at North to twice kick six goals in a grand final in the drawn 1977 grand final against Collingwood. And then the following year, he kicked another six against Hawthorne and Kelvin Moore in the 78 flag. But when he came to Geelong mid-season in 1975, he didn't really want to be here. He never embraced the club. Uh, he was travelling up and down from Melbourne. And he simply didn't come back for the 1976 season. And... Um, Geelong did everything to try and encourage him to to play, but uh, unfortunately, he just didn't want to be here and and uh, ended up back at North and a premiership player there in 77. Guys, I want to ask you a question. When we put this team together, because I have never in, in my football lifetime ever seen a photo, a football card or anything of Phil Baker in the in the hoops. Um, is it, Am I alone in this or are you guys who have all got heaps of memorabilia and things in, in your in your rooms at home. Have you ever seen any photo even of Phil Baker in, in, or video footage? No, there probably nothing. isn't because, because he came to Geelong um, just before clearances closed in June 30 for that 1975 season and most of those um, memorabilia shots would have been taken in the pre-season or in the early stages of the season. And because he never returned to Geelong after the end of the 75 season, there probably isn't any sort of memorabilia going around. The team photos for 75 would have been done and dusted. And because he never re-emerged again um, in the 76 season, not even for training, um, you're very, very hard-pressed to find a, a, a shot of Baker in a Geelong jumper. He did play nine games for the Cats, but they're all in the second half of that 75 season. And as you as you say, Anthony, uh, a lot of the team photos would have been taken by that stage, and and also probably the photos for the uh, for the old footy cards back in the day too would have all been locked and loaded before he even actually set foot on the turf at Kidinia Park. Well, that wraps up our program for this week. This podcast is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, including Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and now on Overcast along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. Thanks for tuning in. On behalf of Gus Marini, Megan Holtz, Anthony Petkovic and Mark Brunger, I'm Wes Cussworth. Until next week. Oh, oh, oh.